Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We left off in verse 26. And as you're turning to Hebrews, also turn to the book of Habakkuk. Put a finger in Hebrews and then turn to Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1. You're saying, where in the world is the book of Habakkuk? So if you find the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and go a little bit to your left, you'll find the book of Habakkuk. It's the end of the Old Testament. It's on page number 645. 645. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for a new day. Lord, thank you for this time of year where there starts to become more sunlight and the change of seasons. Father, we know that faith is such an important part of our relationship with you, salvation, and also the situations that we go through in our lives. Father, we ask for a real outpouring of your Holy Spirit, that your message would get across, that we would walk away having drawn close to you, being challenged by you, and being encouraged. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to tackle one phrase this morning, the just shall live by faith, to really look at what that means and how do we apply it in our lives. That sentence is used four times in scripture. The first time that it's used kind of unlocks the meaning for us, and it's in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is really wrestling with some honest questions. He's asking the Lord why, and we see that in these first four verses. So I want to give us a few highlights in the book of Habakkuk that give us the foundation in this phrase, the just shall live by faith. So this is verse one. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not see. So he's crying out to God, but he feels like he's not being heard. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Can you relate to that? Ever cry out to God and you don't feel like he's listening? You don't feel like he's responding? The law feels powerless. Justice isn't being done. The wicked are prospering. The wicked are surrounding the righteous. Things are going to get more complex for Habakkuk because God answers in verse 5 through verse 11. And to summarize, to paraphrase, God says that he's going to bring in pagan nations to judge the children of Israel. Israel's been in idolatry and God says now it's time to be dealt with. You're going to be taken out of the promised land. The Babylonians are God's instrument to do that. And that's even more confusing to Habakkuk. Habakkuk knows that he's struggling. I think we know that we're struggling. We know when we're wrestling with God, and he does something very wise. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch, I will set myself on the rampart, and watch to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer when I am corrected. We can continue in this place of confusion for a long time. But it's important sometimes to put our life on pause, as difficult as that is, and saying, I'm going to get alone with God. I'm going to be isolated with God. I'm determined to hear from the Lord. I'm not leaving this rampart. I'm not leaving this hill. I'm not leaving this place till God has spoken to me. And 
Habakkuk has the humility to understand that his perspective probably needs to be corrected. In the midst of this struggle, in the midst of these asking these honest questions, he knows that he's going to need some correction from the Lord. So this is God's answer. Verse 2, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Make it very simple, Habakkuk, so that someone knows the message when they run by. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. God says, Habakkuk, you don't understand what I'm doing. You don't see my ways, which is so often with us as well, but will you trust me? Will you live by faith? Will you embrace my plan based upon my goodness? Now, you'd hope that once Habakkuk has met with the Lord, that the circumstances change. Isn't that oftentimes our expectation? Okay, God, I put my life on pause. I draw near to you. You gave me the answer. So now things are going to start going good. I'm going to start having clarity. That's not the case. Look at the end of the book. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Habakkuk ends with this song, with this, this hymn, this expression of faith. I think Habakkuk is showing us very practically what it means to live by faith. It says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is every economic means of provision for the nation of Israel. Personally and nationally, it's all cut off. This is the way that they supported themselves. This is the way that they had food. All gone. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's faith. That's living by faith. I know many of you this morning are facing very difficult circumstances. There's no fruit on the vine. There's more confusion than clarity. Wondering what the days will bring, but yet we can choose to praise the Lord. We can rejoice in his character and his goodness. God then meeting Habakkuk in the struggle, the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on high hills. The message there is God doesn't always change the circumstance, but he can give us strength in the midst of those circumstances. So to lay this foundation, now that we turn the page in our scriptures to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, is we're going to find this truth being used again, the just shall live by faith. And there's four things we're going to focus on that are attributes of faith in our text, that are expressions of faith. And this truth of living by faith, it applies in the area of salvation, and it also applies in the situations that we go through in our lives. Verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. If you've come to RMC for any period of time, you know that one of the things that's important to us is to look at the context in which a scripture is written. You could just take verse 26 and try to interpret it, but if you don't look at the whole book of Hebrews, as well as the whole message of the Bible, you're going to come with the wrong meaning. So looking at verse 26, some might say, if you do a sin willfully, 
If you choose to do a sin, not out of ignorance or innocence, but it's a willful choice, then there's no hope for you. You're fuel for the fire of hell. There remains no sacrifice for sin. Now let me ask you, is that the message of the book of Hebrews if you've been studying with us? Is that the message of the Bible? Is that the message of of the gospel? No. So what do you think this, this might mean? Remember what this church is struggling with. They're Jews who've come to know Jesus as their savior and their temptation is to move away from the finished work of Jesus Christ, trusting in what Christ has done and moving back to the law. We don't understand how strong that temptation was for them because to not worship under the law would ostracize them from their families. To continue in this place that Christ is sufficient and not looking to the sacrificial system would put them in a place where they're cut off relationally and in a place of rejection with their families. Again, I don't think we understand this culturally as well because as Americans, we don't care as much about our families as the Middle East does even currently. A lot of us are like, oh man, I get cut off from my family? Oh well. Might make life a little bit easier, you know? That's American. We're, we're individualistic. We're, we tend to be prideful full in that way. But in this culture, to be cut apart from your family, it would cut very deep. And I think if we're honest, it cuts us deep as well. So with that in mind, with the context of the book of Hebrews, for them to sin willfully is to reject the new covenant. To think that Christ is not enough and to go back under the works of the law. And if they go back under the works of the law, then there remains no sacrifice for sin. The animal sacrifice is now meaningless because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. There remains no sacrifice. And the same is true for us. If we stop trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, there's no other sacrifice. The animal sacrifice can't do it. The works of the law can't do it. Approaching God on our own efforts through our own sacrifice can't do it. We look at verse 27, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. What brings us into a position where we receive God's judgment? It's the rejection of Christ. That's what brings us to this place of fearful expectation of of judgment. How do we know this? John 3 verse 18 tells us, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So this begins to unlock the meaning of the text. If I reject Christ, if I reject his finished work, then I can expect judgment. I can can expect the fact that I am in a place where I would receive judgment from the Lord. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Where this is headed is there was judgment under the law, so how much more so would there be judgment if there is a rejection of Christ? Under the law, it's two or three witnesses. If there's two or three witnesses, then someone was found guilty, there was no mercy. And in many ways, this is what our judicial system is founded on as well. I had the opportunity to participate in our judicial system this week. I had a first time experience. And as you grow older in life, like if you're a college student or you're in high school, you're having tons of first time experiences. I have first time experiences like every other month now. 
And they look something like this, a jury summons. I got summoned for jury duty for the first time in my life. I've been living in El Paso County since 2000, never even gotten summons, never gotten that little piece of paper in the mail. I think the reason that I got a summons is I just started voting. You're like, oh no, he just started voting? I gotta go to another church. Just joking, gotcha. I've been voting since I'm 18, it's all right. You can stay, you can stay at RMC, it's okay. I don't know why I, I got you know, picked this time, but I was a little bit nervous. You know, how, how's this all gonna work? And am I gonna get picked for a jury that lasts like three or four weeks? And I don't have time for this and all these other things. Where are you gonna park? And so I get down there on Tuesday, March 3rd, I get into the large room, there's like 200 people. And I'm hoping, okay, hopefully they're not going to call my name and, and send me home. And sure enough, Eric Cartire, come on up. You're <clears throat> so I get in the line. I guess that's me. And, and sure enough, they, they take us upstairs and put us in a little conference room and let us know, you're going to go before the judge and you're going to go in the courtroom and you're going to go before the two lawyers and they're going to ask you questions. There was 18 of us and they were trying to bring it down to six that would be on the jury for this particular for case to see if there would possibly be two or three witnesses. So the lawyers are trying to feel you out for what your worldview is and if they want you for, for the, the jury. And this lawyer paints this picture. He's got two kids. They're five and seven. He bought some St. Patrick's Day cookies with all the green frosting, puts them in the cupboard and say, we got to wait for St. Patrick's Day. Don't eat these. And he comes home from work to find that the cookies have been opened. There's two cookies gone. His kids are brushing their teeth for the second time that evening with a lot of green coming out. And the sink is filled with green. They don't have green toothpaste. And so he says, what do you think of, of this story? What comes to your mind? And he wants a response. So I say, guilty. I say, out loud in front of everybody. <laughs> the judge, the two lawyers, the other 17 people or whatever. So guess what? They did not choose me. <laughs> they said, they said you, can, you can go. And they choose someone else for, for the jury. But it is true on the mouth of two or three witnesses, let, let everything be established. And this is our point. This is what it leads to in verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? First thing to consider about faith is faith values Christ. Faith is only as good as what it's placed in. And the faith that saves, the just shall live by faith, puts faith in Jesus Christ. And so what we see in verse 29 is the exact opposite. It's someone who's not valuing Christ. How do they do that? Is that they take Christ and they trample him underfoot. They take the blood of the covenant and they count it as a common thing. They insult the spirit of grace. Now how would you do that? Again, is this a struggle with sin? Is this a time of backsliding? This verse is not so much addressing a struggle with sin and backsliding, but it's turning our back on Jesus Christ. And how would we do that? By not believing that his work upon the cross is sufficient and thinking that we have to earn salvation through our own works. It insults the spirit of grace. It tramples on the Son of God. 
It takes the blood of the covenant and it makes it a common thing. The blood of Jesus is the same as the blood of the animals. No, the blood of Jesus is far greater than the blood of the animals. So it's all that we've been learning in Hebrews. It brings us to this place of saying, if I somehow stop believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then I'm putting Christ underfoot. And we understand the extreme disrespect of putting someone underneath your foot. You only put things underneath your feet that you don't value very much. Like we're thankful for carpet, but we don't really value carpet. We just walk over it. You know, asphalt, I guess in some way we're appreciative of asphalt, but you don't really value asphalt. I mean, you probably spit on it sometimes and, you know, drive over it. And it's not that wonderful and and attractive. So we wouldn't take Jesus and put him under underfoot. I think the message of this section of Hebrews is it's important to have a moment in time when you trust in the gospel for salvation, when you repent and believe and ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, but we don't stop believing the gospel. We don't get to a place where we outgrow the gospel. And I think it's more easy than we might think to lose sight of the main thing and start to trust in our own efforts, to start to trust in our own sacrifice instead of trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit and the author of Hebrews is bringing us back to that place of say, faith values Jesus. Faith values what Christ has done. We're dependent upon the cross for salvation each and every day of our lives, amen? Amen. We go on into verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So if you go away from the sacrifice of Christ, you go back underneath the sacrificial system, that puts you in a place where, guess what? There's no mediator between you and the Father. And that puts you in a place of receiving God's judgment. So it's saying, you know this. Do you want to stand before God on your own works? Would anybody like to take that up? Okay, God, here I am, and here's my church attendance, and here's my holiness, and God's like, well... How about this? And how about that? It's going to be a pretty short conversation. Agreed? And so we always want to be mindful. The reason I'm not receiving God's judgment is only because of Christ. He's the one who's taken the punishment for me. He's the one who's taken the wrath for me. And if I remove that, then I'm in this place where God becomes my judge. I'm not in the place of receiving his favor. In verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. I think this is a second expression of faith, is that faith displays godly fear. And all of a sudden, as we say that, it's like, I don't know if I understand that. There should be a part of us that realizes the holiness of God, and for me to try to stand before God on my own merit should put me in the place of fear. It should put me in a place of saying, I don't ever want that deal. I don't ever want to go before the Lord in that manner. Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You can't have wisdom without putting God in his proper place. And for us to take our proper position of humility, it's an important part of the way that we approach the Lord. You can take two people that sit in the same Bible studies for the same amount of time and you'll have two different outcomes. Why? Because the attitude in which we approach God Two people can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and come out with one knowing and loving the Lord and the other completely rejecting. Why? The fear of the Lord. 
And in Christ, the fear of God is not one where we're constantly living going, is God going to judge me today? Is this the day that God's just going to burn me up in fire? It's not that. Apart from Christ, it is. But in Christ, it's him in his proper position, and it's an awe of God and a fear that's inspired by love. There's a certain amount of godly fear probably inside of your marriage because you love your spouse, you don't want to hurt your spouse. Hopefully you're not afraid that your spouse is homicidal. They're going to come kill you. If that's the case, we'd love to talk with you and do some marriage counseling <laughs> after the service. That's probably not the case. You know, but you love your spouse. There's, there's some fear, there's some respect, there's some awe there that's based out of love. And when we understand grace and we understand the gift of Jesus Christ, it moves us to the place of godly fear that's healthy and it's appropriate. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God apart from Christ. Verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. This is where this letter becomes very personal. The person writing the man writing this is the pastor to this church. He's had some spiritual influence in this body of of believers. We don't know who it is because they don't refer to themselves. So there's been a lot of speculation on who's the human author, but now he gets to that conversational level and he says, hey guys, do you remember all that you've been through? Do you remember the great struggles that you've had because of your faith in the gospel? So Don't cast away your confidence. Don't cast away your dependency upon Christ. And it is important to remember all of the things that God has been faithful to in your life. If you've walked with the Lord sometime, it's probably cost you something. God has gotten you through some some difficulties, and why would you cast that away? Why would you stop depending in the finished work of, of Jesus Christ? So he says, after the lights were turned on spiritually and you were illuminated, it says you endured a great struggle with with sufferings. We know from church history that this was a very difficult time, that there was immense persecution upon believers. Verse 33, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. The word spectacle means to be publicly exposed In the Greek, it has the idea of theater, publicly ridiculed and mocked. It's one thing to be persecuted, and it's another thing to be publicly made fun of. And they'd endured this. They'd become the spectacle because of reproach and tribulation. And also, they were persecuted because of their companion with those who were being faithful in the gospel. We see this in certain parts of the world. If you stand up and you say, you know, I'm with them, I'm not going to forsake them. They're being persecuted because they're a Christian. I'm a Christian too. And we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Then all of a sudden the target has been put on your back as well. In verse 34, for you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. At some point, or even currently, this pastor is in prison. He's in chains for the gospel. And this church didn't turn their back on him. They said, that's my pastor. That's my brother in Christ. And because they stood with him, they also went through persecution and their goods were plundered. Someone was a shop owner and their their shop was completely destroyed. 
Another Christian, they came in and took all of their possessions and burned them in, in front of their house. I mean, plundering is not a very nice word. And plundering their goods, all of because they were faithful in Christ. This isn't a church that doesn't have history with Christ. And that causes us to see the gravity of what it would mean for them to lose confidence in the finished work of Christ. We're not talking about someone who's been saved for a week. We're talking about people who publicly had been made spectacles, who had had their goods plundered, but it also gives us an idea of some of the pressure that's being put on them. Hey, if you just go back to the Old Testament, if you just go back to the law, if you don't talk as much about Jesus being the Messiah, it's going to be good for your business. I'm, some, I'm sure some of these believers were in a place where they figure, man, if I just kind of compromise on this issue of who Christ is, things are going to get a lot easier for me in the here and the now. Notice as their goods were being plundered, they were joyfully, they joyfully accepted it because they know that they have an enduring possession in heaven. If it's better, it's enduring. How could they be joyful? Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and when they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you're persecuted for Christ's sake, for righteousness sake, Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. Here it says, an enduring possession. Jesus taught us to lay up our treasures in heaven. Why? Because heart follows treasure. And when your treasure's in heaven, your heart lines up with God's priorities. But the human tendency is to hang on to things that we have. But before we have them, sometimes we don't even really care. You don't have a lot of money in the bank? Oh, sure, it'd be nice to have some money in the bank. God blesses and you put a few thousand dollars away in savings and you're back in your mind, we, we can't lose that money in savings. It felt terrible to not have any money in savings and, and, and now I have it. I, I gotta hold on to it. You know, God blesses with a fairly nice car and then all of a sudden, I can't, can't lose this car. You know, blesses with a house, life was fine in an apartment, but now that we're in a house, what if we ever lost our house? We, we can't lose our house. And, and once we have it, we don't want to let go. I read an article this week called Perpetual Pet. And apparently, if you're having a hard time of letting go of your pet when your pet dies, you can get them freeze-dried. It's this crazy taxidermy thing where then you can get your pet out of the freezer, apparently. Oh, it's so good to see you. Oh, now, I know it's hard to let go of a pet. We own a dog as a family. It's a little bit of a love-hate relationship. But there's some love there. We got Lady Lou when the older girls were little. She's getting older. And I'm sure when it's time to let her go, she dies, have her put to sleep, I'll be crying. I hate to admit that as a man, but I probably will be crying. She's a good dog. She even loves me when I'm in a bad mood, right? But the cost of making her the perpetual pet is very expensive. Apparently, if you have a small dog, it's $400. If you have like a golden retriever-sized dog, it's $800. Well, we have a Newfoundland. She's 160 pounds. If we went the perpetual pet direction, that'd probably be like 1,500 bucks. It's just time to let her go. 
just by the mere fact that there's something called perpetual pet and people are doing this, it identifies how attached that we can get to our possessions. And here this church, they navigated this well. They had joy in the midst of having their goods plundered, but yet they're struggling with their confidence in the gospel. They're struggling with living by faith. We go on into verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. The crux of the whole matter is the continual dependency upon Jesus Christ. And knowing that salvation, the just, being justified, comes through not my works, but my faith in Jesus Christ. Don't cast away that confidence. Don't move away from from that place. In the major leagues, in baseball, the pitchers sometimes lose their confidence. If you're not a baseball fan, the pitcher's the one who stands on the mound, pitches the ball towards home plate. There's been fabulous pitchers that will blow one game, happens to be the last game of the World Series, the seventh game, the ninth inning, they blow it, they mess up, and their career is ruined. Mentally, they can't get over it. They've lost confidence. See, for us, losing confidence, it's not in ourselves. We shouldn't have confidence in ourselves. We have our confidence in Christ. We have confidence in in who he is and what he's done for us. You know, today in worship, we, we sang about the lamb has overcome. It's already been done. The work has been paid for. It's been finished. He, he's our high, high priest. So through faith, we remain in that place. We don't cast off our confidence. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Third expression of faith, faith endures in confidence. Saying, guys, you need endurance. You need to continue in faith and not cast off your confidence. Enduring means remaining under heavy burden. They were to remain trusting in the finished work of Christ even under heavy burden. Even under family members saying, you need to go back under the law. Even under false teachers coming in and giving a convincing argument of why they needed to return to the sacrificial system. He says, no, remain. Continue. Faith endures in confidence because after you've done the will of God, it's the will of God that we would trust in the finished work of Christ, you will receive the promise. The promise is coming. In verse 37, for yet a little while, and he who's coming will come and will not tarry. Scripture describes the second coming of Jesus Christ as being in a moment. We don't know when it'll be. Generations have been waiting for the second coming of Christ, but he's not going to wait forever. And once he comes, we'll look back and go, it was only a brief moment of time. Because eternity is forever. Try to grasp eternity. Never ends. Our minds can't even fully fathom it. So what is all of the generations of humanity compared to eternity? nothing, then my life's even smaller. Let's say you get to be 90 years old, you beat the average. What's 90 years compared to eternity? This life is just simply a blimp. You can hardly even describe it. On top of that, not only are we racing towards the second coming of Christ, but my life is moving towards eternity. Your life is moving towards eternity. If Christ doesn't return in our, our lifetime, how long is your life? No guarantee of 90. 
This could be the year that you go home to be with the Lord. This could be the week that, that we go home to be with the Lord. And keeping an eternal mindset really does provide that hope and that encouragement. It's not going to be very long. In a moment, you're going to be with God. So continue in that place of faith. Continue in that place of trusting in the Lord. I think it's a key ingredient to going through trials and hard times. You know, if you are in school currently, if not, think back to just one of those boring classes, one of those awful classes. What was your hope in those classes? The bell is going to ring. I remember 10th grade, my history class, it was literally so boring that I took notes the whole semester with my left hand. I'm right-handed. I was like, I got to find some challenge in this class. And the teacher would just talk and just talk and talk. And he required us to take notes. So I said, okay, I'm going to do it with my left hand. Otherwise, I'm going to fall asleep right here. And what was my hope every day? The bell's going to ring. I'm going to get out of here. Well, guess what? The bell's going to ring. Christ is going to come. You're going to go home to be with the Lord. So endure in confidence. Verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. Our key phrase. Third thing about faith is faith produces life. Faith in Christ produces life. The just shall live by faith. There's three books in the New Testament that are written with this theme. So this tells you how important this truth is. The book of Romans emphasizes by faith. The just shall live by faith. On Wednesday night, we're studying Romans. It's been fun to go through Romans and Hebrews together. This Wednesday night, we're going to be in Romans 12. I invite you to come. I think it'll be worth our time together. Galatians emphasizes the just. That we're justified, we're declared righteous by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Then Hebrews emphasizes the shall live. How shall we live since we have faith in Christ? We shouldn't live under the law. We shouldn't live with the perspective that we're earning or deserving God's favor through our works. We should live out of grace. We should live out of relationship. Please read ahead for Hebrews 11. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. We'll start it next week because it gives us examples of faith, of living by faith. It's how we should live. None of the examples are perfect. In fact, we're going to find that each of them have their tremendous flaws. But one of the things they have in common is they believed in God. They trusted in God. They trusted God's promises. They lived by faith. So salvation comes through faith. The just shall live by faith. But also, going through life as a believer is by faith. That's what Habakkuk was dealing with. Here he is confused. He's asking hard questions. There's no fruit on the vine. He's wondering where God's at. He doesn't understand God's mysterious ways. And he begins to learn to walk by faith, to live by faith. And he writes that beautiful song at the end of the book of Habakkuk. We trust God with salvation if you know Christ as your Savior. God saved me. I have eternal life. That's our greatest need and our greatest problem. But yet it's difficult to trust God in our situations, isn't it? Lord, where are you in this? It's completely natural. I don't know why, but it seems to be our struggle. But I would hope this morning that we could be encouraged to go, God, you've taken care of salvation. I know you're going to be faithful in the situations as well. Maybe it's something like this. Someone offers to give you a round-trip ticket and trip to Europe. Two weeks. They're going to go with you, and they're going to pay for everything. 
just because they like you. You're a nice guy. You're a nice gal. They say, let's go. And you get on the plane, go over to Paris. It's the first stop. You believe that they've got everything covered. But then all of a sudden, some doubt starts to come into your mind. It's the cappuccino. There in Paris, you didn't realize that the cappuccinos are $4 for one little cup of cappuccino. And you start to wonder, are they really that kind? Are they really that good? Do they have the financial resources to get this little cup of cappuccino? Who knew some espresso and some milk could be so expensive? And then it dawns on you, they've already paid for the ticket. I've already gotten over here. I've got the ticket back home in my pocket. I'm sure that they can cover the cappuccino as well. The ticket's already been paid for. Eternal life has already been provided. God can handle the cappuccinos in life as well, can't he? But it's choosing to let go. It's choosing to trust. And that's what's difficult. All of us wrestle with that. It's important to God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not 50%, not 75, all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him. Then he'll direct your path. This doesn't come from feelings, I don't think, most times in immense trials. It comes through a thought process of looking at the cross and going, Jesus, you died for me. And my feelings are saying this, but I know that you're good because of your sacrifice on the cross. So I'm choosing to trust you. I'm choosing to rejoice in you even though there's no fruit in the vine. Living by faith for salvation, but also in the situations in our lives, then I think the result is life. Then I think the result is strength in the midst of the trial as we go through the ups and we go through the downs. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So very clearly, Jesus is talking or about believing in his finished work. So once we stop believing in what Christ has done for us, his death and resurrection, then God says, I have no pleasure in you. I know that's sobering. But it's also very encouraging because let's flip this on its head logically. So if God has no pleasure in us, if we're not confident in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if we are confident on the finished work of Jesus Christ, guess what? He has pleasure in you. I think we get all backwards what causes God to have pleasure in us. And we're still stuck in this performance-based relationship with God. We're thinking when we do things right, God's going, boy, that a girl. You're my son, you're my daughter. And then we blow up and he's kind of over here going, well, I'm not sure if you're my kid today. I'm not sure if, I don't really have any pleasure in you today. Why don't don't you come back when you start to clean yourself up? That's the wrong view of the gospel. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is so deep, so large, so significant, that as we trust in what Christ has done for you, the father looks at us and he goes, I have pleasure in you. And that's really the only thing that can bring us to the place where God could have pleasure in us. So it takes off that performance base and we actually just get to enjoy our relationship with the Lord. We get to respond to what God has done to us. We do desire to live in holiness, but it's based out of who God is and what he has done. Hear that this morning. If you're in Christ, God has pleasure in you. If you're not in Christ, he has no pleasure in you. You can change that. You can put your faith in Christ this morning and come into that place of receiving the favor and the forgiveness of God. Verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. 
The author of Hebrews says, that's not us. We're not moving away from the finished work of Jesus Christ, which results in perdition, which means destruction, waste, or loss. Judas, in the Gospel of John, is described as the son of perdition. He moved away from Christ. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul, you believe in Christ, you believe in his finished work, results in the saving of the soul. We're gonna struggle. We're gonna have our ups and downs. But this is where we wanna remain. Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again. You're the Lord of my life. I'm gonna stay in that place. I'm gonna stay in that confidence of the gospel. So we've seen four things about faith this morning. Faith values Christ. Faith displays godly fear. Faith endures confidence with confidence. And then faith, it produces life. This is one thing that I'd ask you to do as you prepare to go on your way this morning is would you meditate and prayerfully consider this one phrase, the just shall live by faith. And a couple things may begin to happen. One is you may realize that you've never trusted in Christ for salvation. The just do not live by works. The just do not live by their own holiness. The just live by faith. And you realize, man, I need to trust in Christ for salvation. And if that light bulb's going on right now as we go to this last song, would you come forward? Would you make a decision about eternity? God wants you to go to heaven, but the only way that that can happen is by believing in Christ, repenting of your sin, turning away, and putting your confidence in Christ. Jesus, save me. Jesus, take control of my life, and God will be faithful to his word to save you. But then also, would you wrestle with it like Habakkuk did? Be honest with the questions that are in our lives as believers and start to surrender the situations in our lives to the Lord. If you're like me, a lot of times I'm trying to re-engineer my situation. I wanna get out of the hardship. I wanna get out of the difficulty. There's gotta be some way to make my life easier. And God's saying, Eric, why don't you trust me? Why don't you quit working so hard to get out of your circumstance and let me have it? And then this is the daily walk with the Lord because I can give it to the Lord this afternoon and take it back tomorrow morning. So it's continuing to surrender to the Lord. God, you want me in this place of trust. I trust you for salvation, so I trust the situation to you. The just, they shall live by faith. And see what God shows you as you meditate upon it and you pray about it. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this truth, we pray it would dig down deep into us. Holy Spirit, that you would Bring that intimate and personal application. Father, I pray for those that are at that same place as Habakkuk this morning, saying, God, are you listening? Are you, are you hearing? Why are you allowing this? And Father, would you answer? Lord, and would you move us to that place of regardless of our circumstances, we can take joy in, in who you are. Or this is easier said than done. So would you comfort? Would you bring application? Lord, if there's any today that are starting to undermine you, undermine you, Jesus, and for some reason the sacrifice of Christ, it, it doesn't have the same value in their heart and their mind. They're starting to rely upon something other than what you have done for them on the cross. Lord, would you move them back to that place of firm confidence in your finished work?
Lord, we pray for those that have never come to you in saving faith. Lord, would you save them? Holy Spirit, would you move in their hearts and show them your love? In Jesus' name, amen.